This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Hi, everybody. This is Gatsad. It's been a while that uh, we've been trying to uh, schedule this uh, chat with Yeonmi Park, who is a human rights activist and a North Korean defector. She's written two books. Let me read the earlier one from 2015. In order to live a North Korean girl's journey to freedom, how she escaped North Korea and landed in the U.S. And the one that's coming out on Valentine's Day this year in a few days, this one right here, make sure to pre-order it. If not, you want to wait till February 14th, make sure to go get it. Yeonmi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be speaking to you. I mean, one of the reasons I think that I your story uh, resonates with me because as you may know, we also, uh, you know, uh, were in a very difficult situation in Lebanon. We're Lebanese Jews. We had to escape Lebanon when I was 11. Uh, but if I were to ever think of someone who had a more harrowing story than my story, it would probably be you. Uh, so would you mind telling us, so going back to your first book, how, you grew up in North Korea. How was it like there? How did you escape? And so on. Take it away. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, I read your book, Parasite Mind, so I know some of your story. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, North Korea is almost like a different planet. And even North Korean calendar begins when Kim Il-sung was born, not when Jesus Christ was born. And I often say that North Korean people have no clue that they are isolated, that they are oppressed. You know, the definition of oppression is that not knowing the definition of oppression. If you know it, you cannot be really oppressed. So uh, when I was growing up in North Korea, the most common song that we had to sing every day at our school was uh, nothing to envy. Those teachers taught us that we had literally nothing to envy in this world because we were living in a utopia. We were living in the socialist paradise. But however, the daily life was millions of people died when I was uh, growing up. I was born in 1992. Three, but Soviet Union collapsed right before, and there were st- like stop subsidizing North Korea's economy. So more than three million people died, and really, life everybody's like lost their family members during that time, and we did not even know that the outside world were free or had internet or had electricity. Here, twenty first century today in North Korea, they still cannot have electricity. It is literally the darkest place in the world right now. Wow. So, but I mean, how close is it? I mean, will do people know that the World Cup just happened? Do people know that France exists? Or, I mean, you, you know, it's difficult to imagine that a country could be so, you know, hermeneutically sealed the way North Korea is. Give us a sense of how close it is. It is. So, I'd say... So North Korea began in the idea of complete equality, the equality of outcomes. Nobody is poor, nobody richer. So North Korean people loved the idea initially, right? There is a he, the Kim Il-sung, our first dictator, 
he promised us the utopia where there's no injustice. Everything is going to be taken care of by the government. Free healthcare, free education, no taxes, no private property. Everything was free and everything was public to share. Once people gave all their rights and their land and everything they owned to the government in the hope that they would be just and then sharing it equally between people, the regime literally divided people into 51 different classes. 51? Yeah. Okay. What is shocking about North Korea's caste system is not like we don't have a diversity of different religion or race. We are a homogeneous country, the same language, and people look the same and with the same genetics. And how the caste was divided was very similar even like today in America, unfortunately, based on what your ancestors did. So nowadays in America, if your ancestors perhaps own the slave, that you are guilty and you're a privileged class, right? You're an oppressor. But in North Korea, based on what your ancestors did, like was your landowner, then your blood is tainted. Was it a trader that was a capitalist and your blood is tainted? Was it an educator? Of course, that's a bourgeois. So that's your, so de- depending on what your great grandfathers did, that our deter- the class will determined by the regime even before we were born. So based on that 51 different classes, like Kim Jong-un, he goes to school Switzerland. They go to get educated in Moscow, Beijing, London. However, the people like in the bottom class, which is 90% of the population, I've never even seen the map of the world. I did not even know that I was Asian because the teachers taught me that I was my dear leader's race. I was Kim Il-sung race. North Korea has a different time zone. And as I said, we had a different calendar, right? So it's a completely different planet at this point. Incredible. So where... Where in, in the 51 castes, what was the number of your family? Where were you? So we don't exactly know because this is a government, a private information, but we know approximately there's like a core part, middle is wavering, last one they call hostile class. So when I was born, we knew like we were in the middle somewhere. We were not hostile class. But my father was engaged in trading in the black market. He sold metals and dried fish and cloths. Because in North Korea, trading is illegal. They ban the word profit because that's so evil. It's a capitalist society. So selling anything is illegal in North Korea. It's not like dealing drugs or weapons. So once he went to prison camp for that, we were became bottom of the bottom, the hostile class. Incredible. So what? What at what point did whomever started the the idea in your family? Okay, let's try to get out of here. Do, do you remember that exact moment where someone said, for whatever reason, we think there's a better world out there. Let's leave. How did that mechanism happen? So up until two thousand seven, uh, by then I was two. I was thirteen years old. We were inside North Korea and outside, like. North Korea has a border towns that is a across from China. We had one river, like Yellow River flows, and there's a China right in front of us across the river. And luckily, by that time when I was 13 years old, we were moved into the northern part of North Korea. And just at nighttime, literally, we were just walking on the road. We could see the electricity lights coming from Chinese side. 
And we sometimes even smell the food from Chinese side. And that's how we thought maybe if we go where the lights were, we could find a bowl of rice. And when we were, it was a more gradual process than like one epiphany. We let's escape. We did not even know the meaning of escaping at the time. We didn't have even vocabulary for that. We just simply thought we go where the lights were, begging for some food. Maybe we can come back. Incredible. I mean, how much freedom in the day-to-day life of a typical North Korean? You're a kid. You're attracted to this boy in high school or this girl. Are you able to go out on a date? Are you able to choose whom you'd like to go out with? Can you have premarital sex? In other words, does the government only care about controlling sort of your socio-political, economic, you know, uh, reality? Or is every little thing under the nose of the government? So I'm so glad you asked that. In some ways, like we are making fun of North Korean Kim Jong-un's haircut, right? He was demanding all North Korean men should get his haircut. Just like that, uh, people literally get executed watching uh, movies that was not allowed by the regime. The regime decides what movie you can watch, what songs you can listen to, what books you can read, what haircut you can have. We literally have something called a uh, fashion police. I'm sure some uh, yeah. Middle Eastern countries yeah. have that, right? Yeah, it's like that. People get arrested and sent to prison camp for wearing uh, wrong clothes. Like wearing jeans is a symbol of capitalism. They send people and they punish people for wearing just jeans. We are not allowed to wear accessories. And there's no concept of minor in North Korea. They, When you are born, even as a child, they say, you are a revolutionary. Your existence is serving the party and our revolution. So they force little kids to enforce manual labor. So when we go to school in the morning time, we get brainwashed learning how our dear leader is so amazing, what miracles he can do. And in the afternoon, they mobilize enough collective farm or collective factory or dance anything, railways they can need. They collect children, adults, everybody in the forced labor without any payment or food. Wow. We are all just slaves with any without any rights. Incredible. In, in a second, well, I'll talk about your eventual escape and then we'll come to your latest book, but I'm still, let's stay in mm-hmm. North Korea for, for, for a bit. Th- does there ever come a time when you, you think it is conceivable that there is a tipping point where I, I don't know through 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 some information getting into Korea, there will mm-hmm. be a quick collapse in the way that it happened with the Soviet Union, or can this reality remain for many more hundreds of years? How do you see the future of North Korea playing out? So the existence of North Korea is solely depending on the Chinese Communist Party. If Chinese Communist Party last as it is, North Korea will last as long as it, it could. The reason only North Korea stays the way today is because of China sponsors this dictatorship to exist the way it is. So uh, the problem with the current North Korean system is something called the, like zero tolerance. There has been many, many dictators in the world, but it has never been this much of brutality and zero tolerance. Literally in North Korea, the first thing my mom told me as a young girl was, 
don't even whisper because the bird and mice could hear me. She said the most dangerous thing I had in my body was my tongue. If I said that one thing was wrong in the eyes of the regime, that wasn't just going to kill me. It was going to up to three to eight generations of my family. Incredible. So, yeah, when, uh, when top uh, high-ranking official escaped to, from North Korea, more than 30,000 people got punished. And a lot of them did not even know related to this guy because they were going after eight generation. And by the eight generation, you are not gonna know. Like they literally go after the in-laws of the in-laws and nephews of the nephews, like not even blood related. Because you're married, your nephew somehow down the line married to that family and their in-laws, like that's how they find a connection. Incredible. You mentioned, you know, that there are many dictatorial regimes throughout the world today mm. or through history. I'm glad you mentioned this because I wa I was going to try to compare, let's say, the, the the Kim dynasty to, let's say, Saddam Hussein, which, you know, of all dictators, you know, you would have thought he certainly is one of the most diabolical and, and evil, you know, mm -hmm. among a long list of very evil uh, dictators. Now, in the case of Saddam Hussein, you know, in a sense, it wasn't ideological, right? It was, there mm -hmm. were gangsters who found a way to, basically be at the head of this country where you know this one of the sons would go around i don't know if you've heard the story where he would go around when people are getting married and he would be looking for women who are very beautiful who are about to get married and then you know the the, the husband to be would disappear and then he would take the beautiful girl is is North Korea structured similarly in that it's just an orgy of power, or is there an actual utopian ideological fervor that drives the regime, or it's just gangsters? So, what the UN after they did a very in-depth of studies in the two thousand eleven, they came out with this course on the COI report after two years of extensive the. United Nations, the committee studied, and the only resemblance that we can find in our history is going to be uh, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, wow. and the Stalin's uh, work camp. So that was, they thought, that most similar thing they could find in the human history. And the degree of the corruption of the regime is not even like you show up and get this mature woman about to get married to her husband. North Korean regime literally demands to officials in every province to submit young girls from every province. So I was actually, when I was young, I was being picked. The, the officials comes to elementary school, okay, kindergarten, middle school, high school, and they go around, look for the pretty girls. And then when they pick those girls up, they go to, of course, check your virginity first and your body, if you have any wound or not, and they check your family history, if you have any tainted blood in your family, and then they take them to Pyongyang when they graduate from uh, high school, when you are 17 years old or 16 years old, and then they groom you to become a masseuse, or they, call, they divide in three different groups, like it's something called a pleasure squad. The masseuse group, and satisfactory group is where you perform sex act. And then last is a dance and singing group. And Kim Jong-un get offered each night like 2,000 harems every night. And then it's, it's, it's the only country that 
promise is giving you seven virgins in, in the current life, right? There's a lot of other countries in the Middle East promising if you sacrifice for your life for the great good of this God's will, I'm going to give you those seven, you know, virgins and give you the party after life. North Korea gives you that in the current life. That's why the average life expectancy of North Korean, North Korean top officials is five years, actually. They get, per- because like in North Korean regime things, if you're in power for five years, that's enough time to gather some kind of support. They need to be purged. But up until that point, they use something called the gift of politics. They give to you this curse. They give to you this, all the goods and luxuries in the world. So this guy is like completely lost during the time. And even though they're going to get eventually killed, like Kim Jong killed his own uncle, right? Who made him to become in that power position. He killed his own uncle. And so it's a, it's very, it's unbelievable corruption. They, uh, one of the guys was so psychopath who is right now current number two power. I think he's a father-in-law to Kim Jong-un. It's his wife's father. He's so perverted that he would take all the teeth out of these girls so they can perform better, you know, when they kiss him. And this is the, the dark age where there's no more law, common sense, or human rights, or dignity. Just they using these 25 millions of human beings as their, not even toys, just however used they can, however way they can kill. Like, it, there's no accountability, right? There's nobody, international community, that watching them what they're doing. So they can do whatever they want because China forever going to protect them. So in your case, you left when you finally escaped from North Korea. How old were you? I was 13 years old. Okay, so it was before you were chosen for the pleasure, whatever you call it, the pleasure groups? Yeah, I was selected at school, but then they, they looked it up. My father was in the prison camp. So then my songbun, which my cast was not good enough to go. So even picking the sex slaves with North Korea, they still care about what uh, your family line was. And the, the why parents are so grateful when their children are chosen for this is that at least their children are not going to die from starvation. At least during the time when they serve the dictator, they're going to get fed. And, and that's all you are hoping for in North Korea as a parent. So if those girls that are chosen to be part of the pleasure squad for X number of years, once they complete their duty in the mm. pleasure squad then they go back to their regular lives. Are they viewed as stigmatized because they've been used by these other men or you're no longer a virgin, nobody wants to marry you or it's okay, it was it was an honor for you to have been raped by all these important guys? You cannot go back to civilian life. So you picked up around 16, 17 and uh, for Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, they believe that having sex with the young girls would give them some young energy and living, like make them live forever. So they would rape like young kids, like who's even like less than 10 years old. But this professional pleasure squad members is not only just have to perform sex act, they have to have skills, right? They have to know how to massage and dance and perform and like very erotic dances. And they have a lot of these dances with the origin. Like they need to learn how to take off their clothes, all of that. So these girls usually finish their serving, almost like service, like military service, they call it, fake military service. 
but uh, by the time when they are 23 or 24, then they think they are too old to use. So by then, when they have to get out, so when they got picked up by 16, 17, they ask parents to sign a thing that they're never going to see their daughter ever again in their life. Because the, these girls were partied naked with a dictator and other type of fishers. They cannot go on to his civilian life and talk about that. Sometimes they give them shots to they can never uh, murmur the words, make them, uh, well, how do you say, to cannot speak. Uh, so, mute, they're mute. Yeah, they, they do that to some girls. And then some girls, they make them marry to the bodyguards. So they give the picture to these girls, like, okay, why don't you select one of these guys? Because these bodyguards also have to be so brainwashed to def like defend the dictators and the top official with their own life. So they get gifted these used girls in their mind, giving this curse to the bodyguards because bodyguards are also going to see everything by being present in these parties and everything. They see everything. So they match the bodyguards and these girls who know everything and cannot be revealed to the public society. You know, one of the things that makes, you know, your story or, you know, my story, which, as I said, I, I don't, I think you, your story outranks mine, and that's pretty difficult to do, is that it contextualizes for Westerners when they whine about their first, you know, the first world problems and all of the made up problems that they worry about. They really don't appreciate that there's a whole buffet of societies out there. I mean, that need not be as bad as North Korea, but that are a lot worse than what we have in the West. And that's why I think, you know, voices like yours, Ayan Hersey Ali, people who've lived through actual misery and victimology are such important voices, which I guess that's kind of what you get to in your second book. But before we get there, so, okay, now at one point you decide you're leaving, mm -hmm. you leave North Korea, take us to the journey from you escaped North Korea and you eventually land in the United States, what was that journey like? Wow. <laughs> uh, I escaped with my mother initially uh, in 2007 in, in the March. And we had to cross this frozen river into China. And there were guards in every 10 meters with the machine guns to red to shoot anybody who crosses the river. So, so they, a, those guards are are not going to be sympathetic to you. They're going to try to get you back to North Korea or will they be open to protecting you? Oh, they're going to shoot you. Oh, they're going to shoot? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a... <laughs> North Korea is the definition of hell is you are not allowed to leave the country. It's not like even Iran. The countries are like, let you go, right? A lot of horrible countries still let you go. So North Korea is different. When oh, these are North Korean guards. I thought you meant yeah. you're in China now. Okay, got oh, you. Ch so Chinese border guards does the same thing. They catch you and send you back to North Korea. Right, okay. So we have to evade these guards, and they're everywhere. I luckily, the guy who was sent taking us to China bribed one of the guards. So we were allowed to cross the river, and we arrived in China, and we were greeted by somebody called a Chinese broker in the river bank of China. And um, first thing he does was raping my mother. And then he took us to a shelter house. And then he asked another broker to come from the inner land of China and negotiating our price. So they sold my mother for $65 uh, and they sold me 
just above $20 because I was virgin. I, I was young. They somehow, young virginity is very valuable among these perverted traffickers. So I was a lot more expensive than her. And then I got separated from my mother from there on. I was bought initially another trafficker. So there's a lot of trafficker wings, right? Each time that we are being sold, our price goes up. He was, of course, trying to rape me. So I wasn't kill myself. I couldn't take that shame. And he said, if I become his mistress, he could uh, help me to bring my family back to me. So, you know, at 13, I thought if I can sacrifice myself, I can bring my family. So I did become his mistress. And he brought my mom back from the farmer that he sold to. And he brought my father from North Korea who was sick outside prison camp. And that's how I got reunited from my family. But my father passed away a few months later because he was just severely tortured and had cancer. And then almost two years later of the slavery, uh, we met another North Korean, fellow North Korean ladies who told us that there was a way out of China. That was actually, there were missionaries from South Korea rescuing North Korean defectors. And they would help us to cross the frozen Gobi Desert into Mongolia. And from there, we could go to South Korea. So in 2009, uh, when I was 15 years old, uh, I walked across the frozen Gobi Desert into Mongolia from China. And then a few months later in Mongolia, I was sent to South Korea. So that's how I became free. Wow. I- I mean, forgive me for asking such a delicate question, but given, you know, the the sexual, you know, attacks and so on, Mm. are you, are you able to somehow compartmentalize that as part of somehow your past? Yes, of course, it still haunts you, but then to be able to moving forward, be able to have healthy relationships with, with men, I'm I'm not, I don't know if you're married or not, Mm. or is this something that can sort of never be washed away from your psyche? How? How do you go on day to day, given what happened to you when you're 13? It's that's a thing. Uh, when I came to America, writing my first book, I remember my agent and editors were telling me, "You mean you need to go see a therapist? You're traumatized." So I was like, "What's trauma? You know, what's a therapy?" Because in North Korea, we don't have a vocabulary for love, freedom, human rights, trauma. Or even stress, because like, how can you be stressed living in a socialist paradise? But they don't just give us the vocabulary to describe what it is. And it's a thing like, if I survive a desert, I'm sure I can survive what happened to me two years of my life. And it, it, it was true. Like, it was a very scary to trust men because any men that I met for the first time were like rapists and trying to rape me and my mother. But it, I realized that my father was a man and he was such a wonderful person. And to keeping that perspective and, you know, it's not generalizing things, I think helps. So I love men and I have a son actually oh. who's, yeah. And it's, it's the most amazing thing. And I'm a huge, huge, you know, <laughs> support of men right now, especially this time of age. You know, I wish, <laughs> I wish more, uh, you know, feminists who go in women's studies program could, I mean, I'm sure millions have already heard your story, but because when they start with their, you know, all men are rapists and toxic masculinity, here is someone who has really 
experienced, you know, brutality coming from men and yet is not willing to throw every man under the bus. So that's a very noble thing of you to do. Uh, okay. So, so then you make it to the United States. You don't, you don't, you obviously don't speak a word of English. Oh, I was in South Korea. So I said, like, oh, I was, learned there, to, that's right. okay. so I went to South Korea for five years. I was in the university and one year I was like my prof- university said in order to graduate from university in South Korea, you have to have certain degree of fluency in English. So I Googled one day how to learn English and they said, watch American TV shows. And then I looked up this show called Friends. Oh, so, boy. <laughs> it's one of my most hated shows. Yeah. No. Really? <laughs> okay, okay. Go, on. Go on. So I watched Friends for 10 seasons, like 30 times. And that taught me English for sure. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, yeah. So, okay, five years there. You, you finished your university degree there or you didn't finish no my junior year that's when i uh, almost end of junior year i came to america to write the first book when i was 21 years old wow and so that's how i began my education in in america from there on. you went to columbia correct yes yes (laughs) and was was it was it i mean we'll talk in a second your exposure to you know to the woke ideas and the parasitic ideas but was it easy for you to at least socially integrate yourself within the you know university campus campus social system it's in so in maybe just being friends with the people at columbia you mean or, yes yes yeah it's it's a interesting experience and there's by the time when i was at the university i was like 22 years old right and i have seen the world way longer than i guess these people I felt like a thousand years old. So I didn't have the problem where I had to sympathize with their problems, you know? Uh, like for instance, my friends want to go eat at this restaurant. Apparently it's very popular. They want to be in the line for like hour, like two hours. And for all my life, food was about quantity. It was never about quality. So I couldn't understand why on earth would you spend almost two hours of your life standing in the line to get this food. <laughs> there are a lot of like selling food next door. Right. And also like the it's hard to, you know, their problem is okay, I don't have this guy, he doesn't call me today and they're in tears. And their world is falling apart. And I'm like, like that's not even a problem. You know, there's an actual <laughs> problem in the world. And so it, it was very hard. Eventually, could never get in depth friendship. You know, I could just hang out and cheer, but I had some hard time to uh, sympathizing with the American culture and their problems. <laughs> and, and what about in terms of? I mean, you you know, I, I, you you left this very repressive regime where you have no say about your romantic future, who you're going to date. Mm-hmm. Now you come here. Well, of course, there's a lot more freedom here. Uh, how do you navigate that reality as a young woman who's really, for the first time, is in control of her romantic choices? How does that compute in your head? So that was a thing. It's like it's actually in my book. Uh, I was like I came here at twenty one, and my everybody around me, right, is like educated, liberal, career oriented women tells me, you know, in America you need to self actualize. You need to. Something called test the water. What is that? Yeah, hey, test, it, test, taste, test the water. Test, test the water, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, you don't know what you like until you try everything out. 
You I mean in terms know. of men or in terms of life in, in general? In terms of, I think, dating. It could be yeah. woman, it could be man, it can be anything <laughs> these days. And, and then I was like looking at my friends who were like, they looked so miserable. And they were just so I met somebody at 22 and I fell in love, I got married. Okay. And I had a child at 24. So obviously, I was not following the American culture at all. I failed at that horribly. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it was he, but he wasn't Korean. Was he Korean? No, he was American bastard. He was a white guy. <laughs> oh, white. Okay, very nice, very nice. Yeah. But you're not. You're. You guys are no longer together. Yeah, we've been married uh, for five years, and it. We just decided to become co-parents to oh. our child. Yeah. <laughs> and you're. 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 Your child is he, how old is he? He's he must be very young still. He's right? he's almost five now. He's turning five. So he yeah. doesn't he, he doesn't have any sense of your history so far, right? He's not aware of anything. He does because yeah. I think uh, we got divorced actually when he was just turning three or something, and we were very amicable even to this day. So we hung out. We still have dinners together, like hanging out. So. You know, he thinks we are great friends. <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, in terms of your past, in terms of oh, does your son know anything about the horrors that you went through in your past? So this got to be amazing. Maybe he heard me talking about North Korea while I'm pregnant, carrying him, right? He's very curious about North Korea. It's like, you know, like, what is Kim Jong-un like? Does he share his food with you? Like... Did you have Legos, mommy, in North Korea? Like, <laughs> no, that darling. I didn't even know what toy was, right? <laughs> we don't have, like, kids are revolutionaries. We're not supposed to sitting there playing with toys. We need to learn to work and march and worship the dictator. Incredible. Okay, so now you're, you know, you're, you're in the U.S. Uh, community. You, you mm. study at Columbia. You start noticing that there are some really bad ideas that are spreading on university campuses, if not in the world, which leads us to this latest book, While Time mm. Remains. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so this is uh, the first uh, day at Columbia. It's a, a it's an orientation, right? Orientation week. You don't start just like taking classes. And at the orientation week, many things happened. So basically, what I couldn't believe was the material was being taught at Columbia was being taught at North Korean classroom. They were yeah. teaching exactly the same thing. And I was at some point was thinking, did I transfer back into North Korean classroom? <laughs> <laughs> Am I actually in Manhattan right now? It's uh, basically the professor was saying, the, all the problem that we have, all the injustice, unfairness that we are having in our world right now is because of the capitalism and because of white supremacy. And yes. white men. And I was thinking, yeah, that I knew that North Korean classroom taught me that. <laughs> but in America, you're teaching the exact same thing to this university students. And not only that, uh, it was insane. Like, I remember at the sexual orientation, they, it was mandatory that everybody had to attend. They were saying, what is rape? What is not consent? And I was very grateful they were doing that initially. But they say, Okay, two people, equally university students, go out and get a drink. And then they decide to have a sex together, consent, right? Two equal minds. And then go have a sex. And next day, women wakes up and he, she feels like 
she didn't consent to because she was under the influence of alcohol. So then that's a rape. But like, what about the man? Like he also had equally, a, <laughs> it's not the same application of the law or fairness to gender. So in some sense, you can argue in any way you want, like guys can never win in this situation. So that's like, if you call that rape, I don't think any of you knows what rape actually looks like. Right. To women actually living through actual rape, that's an insult to what rape is, right? To that word, actually, to vocabulary. And my professor, I mean, the instructor was asking who likes to read Jane Austen because she wanted to give us the example of how to stay woke. And I, until this moment, I did not even hear the word woke until that point. So I was like, what is woke? And she's like, this is how you stay being woke. So who likes to read Jane Austen? And I raised my hand. Because, you know, in North Korea, even till 21st century, humans are not allowed to love or have a, have a romance. It's most demonized word. The only love that North Koreans can fear is a love for the dictator, not for another person. So somebody in the 18th century were writing about human emotions. Of course, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> and then she was saying, because Jane Austen was living through the era of white colonialism, and she thought that somehow men were only capable of thinking logically and women cannot think logically and they are so emotional. We get brainwashed by reading her work to supporting white supremacy and supporting systemic racism. That's how you need to watch out for this kind of bigotry and stay woke. It's like what a made up whole nonsense, right? <laughs> so would you would you voice that in class? Like, did you, did you have the confidence at that point to say, wait a minute, what, what are you talking about? This is insane. Or would you just be exposed to it, but keep quiet in the privacy of your thoughts? So initial for a few weeks, I just was a shock mode, you know? I was uh, looking at my classmates and all the wholeheartedly agreeing with this ideology. And then eventually I did a studio, like when they, my professor were teaching me, this is a senior class too, it's not like freshman, at the human rights class too, say there's no difference between men and women. And that how gender is made up of concept by white men and how math is racist. And I was thinking at this point, just clicks back to my North Korean teaching where my teacher was the one day asking me, Yoni, what's one plus one? And I said, two. And she said, you're wrong. My dear leader, as a young child, he discovered that what if you add one drop of water on top of another drop of water? What does it become? It becomes bigger one. It does not become two. So that's how he proved that math is made up by the white man concept and it's racist. Wow. So my professor was saying the same thing. So I was like, I have a uterus. I have an ovary. I was nursing my child at the time. Like, I have different muscle index. I have different bone density. I have different, like, genetics. Like, I cannot be a man. And she was saying, you're brainwashed. Incredible. Hence the parasitic mind. Hence the parasitic Yeah, exactly. So did, were you able, because of the power of your personal history, to get some of the woke people to pay attention to you precisely because you've got your harrowing or, or, or even someone with your history could never break through their brainwashing. No, you can't because uh, in another class, I, they talk about how 
the white men silence all the people of minority. And now we have to study this thing called the Western civilization and their music, right? Like how oppressive this thing is for the minority people that we need to study Beethoven and Mozart in the land of the West. So I was like, I have no problem. I love their music, first of all, you know, it's very interesting what they created. And they were telling me, I cannot talk about, I cannot understand what oppression is because I'm a white passing person. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, what do you know about oppression because you're a white passing person? Or internalized whiteness you have, right? You've internalized yeah. the codes of whiteness. So, even though you may be North Korean, in effect, you are white. Yeah. So, even though what oppression is like i literally got went through the actual oppression in my mind but for them is that i cannot possibly know what oppression is because i'm a white passing person and i think at this point is like it, it's got to be a brainwashing they went through right it's not about them being bigoted or not understanding they are so wired this way since they were little kids like north koreans have been that they cannot see the logic and common sense and truth at this point. It's like me believing that Kim Jong-un could, Kim Jong-il could read my mind up until China. I was so brainwashed to think that they were gods, right? That's what they're telling me, that they could know what, how much hair on my head. Yeah. And it's the same brainwashing happened in America, so they cannot process that. Somebody cannot read your thoughts. Wow. So in, in the book, you're basically arguing that, look, the same kind of, you know, brainwashing and parasitic ideas that I saw in North Korea, I'm seeing it here. And the end result is not a pretty one. So wake up already. That's the general theme, correct? It's, it's just so many. Ideas. That's how they go after science. They have how they go after history. And what shocks me to this day is my son is who's half white and half North Korean. And he got so screwed, right? He's Asian, he's oppressed now, class, and white obviously is. What shocks me is, as I said, like how North Korea divided people into different classes based on what their ancestors did. And now we are demonizing people for not their crime, for the collective guilt, for the yeah. collective crime. And then at this point, then you cannot be responsible for your behaviors. Even though I'm a, such a nice person, I want to make the good in the world. It doesn't matter what I do because my ancestors somehow owned the slaves. What can I do? There is no redemption. There is no mercy. It's going to be forever going to divide it and people hating each other. And when we do not trust each other, when we hate each other, it's a perfect for the environment for governments exactly to get that. Right. Exactly right. And that's why like when we they said like the white gift, white privilege, and like who is the privilege today? Like who owned the slave? Nobody did. And it was not even their decision. And it's that's why it's just so saddens to my heart. Like they don't know what they're doing. They are they don't know if they keep going this direction where where we're gonna end up, like becoming North Korea eventually. Incredible. Do you, have you been able to use your personal history? as a tool or as a weapon against the woke people if they come after you. And the reason I'm asking this is because mm -hmm. I, re regrettably, I've been able to do it often. I I'd like to think that I win my arguments based on the strength of my, you know, my arguments, my points. But if all else fails, I could always turn in my chip whereby I have been more victimized than you and therefore 
I win the argument. Now, in your case, very few people are going to win the victimology poker, you know, over you. So do people run away from you because ultimately they know that you've got this trump card in your pocket that you could use? They don't do that because I said, like, well, I know what slavery feels like because I was actually a slave, right? The slavery never ended when these people say, uh, silence is a violence and we need to speak up for the injustice and let's do BLM and like, okay, why do we now want to then speak up for the North Korean slaves? There are 300,000 of them in China and there are Muslims in the concentration camps. Then they, they say, oh, you're a CIA spy. <laughs> That's how they shut me down. They say, I'm a liar. I, I got trained by CIA. I'm like, when is like CIA calling me, by the way? <laughs> like literally. And then, oh, I'm getting paid by State Department to yeah. fabricate these lies. And like, do you know Biden is in charge right now? <laughs> this guy is... So whatever I say, they say either I am brainwashed by the white wingers and Nazis and racists. Uh, or if that doesn't work, then I said, well, I came up with this mind by myself. Like I read books. I have seen the world. It's not nobody brainwashed me. Then it's okay. You got to be a CIA agent to saying these lies. And that's how they can do this. So most of the people in your social circle, uh, is there a heterogeneity of people? Some are, you know, Hillary, Biden, woke people, others are, or by virtue of the positions that you've taken, you tend to attract people that are more likely to be on the right of the political aisle. So until uh, three years ago, I was closeted a class caligo in some sense. Right? It's hard to come up with a conservative closet than gay closet these days. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I remember when I came to America and like somebody really geared to me today, it's like, so what do you think about, what's, what do you like to do? I was like, I like to read. So what do you like to read? I was like, well, I'm currently leading Bastia as the law and John Stewart Mills the liberty. And I mean, that gives a sign, I guess, to Americans that also, what do you think about people who have ownership to the guns? And it's like, that's amazing thing that imagine if North Korean people had the guns, we are not going to allow them to kill three generations of our family and letting our children get killed. We're going to shoot them back and we get killed, I guess, eventually. But no country can ever do that to their own citizens if the citizens have the arms. Exactly. China could not have taken Hong Kong like that. If the Hong Kong 75% people were on the streets marching for their freedom, they couldn't get it because they could not defend their liberty. So, yeah, of course, I believe in that. Like, I, If I had a guns, I would not let them take my dad like that. And they was like, okay, what do you think about uh, the Constitution? It's like, it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. It, it gave me right by God, you know? And they were saying, well, you should never talk about that. So when I was writing my first book, I had a media training from Penguin Random House. It's not about how I can talk about my message. It's about what I cannot talk about. Wow. What I should avoid. Of course, like, yeah. But back then, I had so much respect for these people that I thought maybe, and they said, they were like, bluntly said that if you ever say these things publicly, nobody's gonna ever hear about what you, what North Korean people are living through. They're gonna, they're gonna kill your characters, they're gonna cancel you, and they're gonna demonize you. You are never gonna even have a chance to fight for North Korean people. So, I had to listen to them and they were right. Like imagine to come out as a North Korean and I said all those pieces, I would not 
been covered by New York Times. I would not have wrote a book with Penguin Random House. Like, why they would have silenced me a long time ago. So, but the, but did that make you feel inauthentic? Because, yes, I understand in a pragmatic sense, you did what you had to do because ultimately mm-hmm. that allowed you to get your message out. But mm-hmm. you were, quote, being fraudulent because you weren't being free to express yourself the way you want to. Did you, did you experience that moral dilemma or you thought, okay, I have to play the game, so I'll play the game? It's, it's in my book you just wrote, read that I came to New York to my agent was ICM Partners, right? Like the most established agents. And of course, my co-author, Marion Bollers, wrote a book with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was introduced to people who were very educated and I had so much tremendous respect for them. So in some sense, I was open-minded. Maybe my thinking is bigoted that uh, I actually believe them. And, but then one day I questioned like why everybody around me, like I was in the events that was at Jeff Bezos events, the billionaires and movers and shakers in the world go to. There's not even one single person supports Trump. But when I go in the taxi driver, when I go like at a grocery store and an ethnic restaurant in Queens, People want Trump to win. And that's, I was like, okay, so who is actually fighting for whom? Because they thought that Trump was fighting against the working class of Americans. And then why did all the powerful people want him to be out if he's actually, you know, fighting for the nice. poor people? So it was a gradual process. And what really the epiphany happened to me was living through the pandemic. Mm and how powerless I was as a mother. Like they literally making my son who was two years old, wearing mask eight hours a day at his daycare. And they were opening up strip clubs next door, bars next door. So people can go and make out and sing and dance and almost like half naked. And adults, because they can speak for themselves, they can just go with a mask, but they open up the dog parks, right? but they closed the playground for children outdoor in the summer of Chicago, in the hot, in the sun. And it's like, it's like North Korea, like dogs have more rights than human beings. Like my child had less rights than the puppies that next door. The puppies could walk around freely without masks to go to the dog park. Because my child is a human being, he cannot go to a playground without masks or like even with a mask on, they shut down the playgrounds. And then, I got robbed one day in the Michigan Avenue in Chicago in 20, during the pandemic, the first year. And I got robbed. I got, got punched by these black women. On the middle of the day, people were calling me, I'm a racist because I was trying to call the cop on these criminals. Right. You, she was the victim. When she yeah. attacked you, it's with her fist. Her yeah. fist was a victim of your face, correct? Yeah. It's, it, but like, even in North Korea, that's not that crazy. That's the thing when I realized. Even in North Korea, if there's somebody like me so petite getting attacked by multiple black women, it's, it's not even color, anybody. And they punch me, take my wallet away in front of my childhood toddler. The people have at least a little bit of humanity with their hair. But at that moment, all that people could see was the color of skin. They thought black people can never be a criminal because they can never do wrong. And I'm an Asian 
like well off Asian these days, right? Any Asian somehow well off that I cannot be a victim. So they were calling me a racist and letting these girls to run away from me. So I cannot call the cops on them. Wow. And that's when I, yeah, that's like, it was not just the college campus was crazy. Like at that point, I thought maybe the universities were that crazy. The general public got to be sane, right? At least. And then just seeing from my eyes, no, it's not. People gone mad. Like the madness of the crowd is like right here. So now that the cat is out of the bag, that you're no longer modulating your positions, do you feel that that might, uh, you know, negatively affect you being invited to the cool kids parties because you're no longer as woke and liberal as they otherwise thought you might be? Of course, like I've been cancelled last year by speech was going to give a Samsung Electronics in the U.S. I was going to talk about purely how I escaped about North Korean peace, not about U.S. the education, any of that. And the two days before my event, the head of diversity calls me. And he says, your political ideas are too controversial and does not align with our values. It's so funny, though, because I became American last year. And in my citizenship exam, the lady asked me, have you ever persecuted anybody for their political opinions? If you said yes, you cannot become an American. The eligibility to becoming American is you cannot persecute people for their political opinions. And these people are doing that. They cannot become Americans if they were foreigners, obviously. <laughs> Incre- what an incredible story. Uh, so what what's next? So, you know, your first book, here's my story out of the hellhole of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Second book, I'm now in the U.S. Here are some problems I'm seeing that are similar to how it was in North Korea. Where do you see, I mean, first, do you do you foresee you remaining an author? And if so, what might be some future projects that you might work on? Yeah, uh, I think before it was that I wanted 500,000 people. Because, you know, it's not like it's enough that I survived. Now I can just cut that bridge. Okay, you guys do whatever you want to do. It's, I still have a loved ones there. And, you know, you have actual genuine survivor skills. Like, you do question. It's not that I fought harder than anybody else that I made it. Somehow I got extremely lucky that I got out. There are only just above 200 North Korean defectors made it to America over the last 80 years. Wow, 200? Yeah, 217 or 209 or something. That's to the US. But what about in total anywhere defecting out of North Korea? What's that number? There are 300,000 North Korean slaves in China today. 300,000? Yeah, they are modern-day slaves. They are sex. Their organs harvested out of them. They get raped. They get killed. It's undescribable like things happening to those people. And I wanted to rescue them. But the thing is, Michelle Obama has no problem for standing up against girls who were captured by ISIS or Boko Haram. But nobody wanted to stand up for the girls who were captured by CCP. And... The one of the Hollywood studio wanted to make a movie about my first book, and then I got the script from this producer. And in the script, it was saying that China was my promised land, that China gave me safety <laughs> and protection. So I called up the producer, like, This is not what happened, you know the story. And he said, This is the only way you can make a movie about North Korea in the current Hollywood. Incredible! So the CCP has its tentacles even in the creative process of the big Hollywood studios. 
because all the studios needed funding from China yeah, and course. they need to distribute in China because that's a big market. So it's not that different. Of course, though, you are not going to get executed if you said something wrong thing. But now in America, you are character assassinated. You lose your livelihood, right? There's actual consequences of, of disagreeing with the elite's political correctness. So in North Korea, the party decides what is the truth, what is justice. In America, the mainstream elite decide what is justice, what is not. What is violence, what is not. And if you disagree with their commitments, somehow now you're outcast and you lose your jobs, you lose your livelihood. And like you, I, I've been making YouTube videos. And during, I, the, right, during the Me Too, that they were so passionately talking about how women get sexually harassed in the workplace. I was like, okay, please, like, it's my time. Let me talk about how women in North, in North Korean women do that in China. And then Google demonetized any video that I criticize China. So I reached out to them, like, do you not support the Me Too? Like, you supported Me Too in the US, right? Like, why not for North Korean women? just simply said, our guideline does not allow this to happen. Incredible. Wow. You know I mean? I could keep you here for another five hours. <laughs> it, it's unbelievable. Please stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Uh, I do come, you know, every couple of months to New York. Now that I know that you live in New York, maybe mm -hmm. we go for a drink when I come next time. Absolutely. In Cape Town, I return you to Sozu. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. Thank you yes. so much. What an incredible story. You're a real, genuine spirit. Uh, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cheers.